What's happening, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Deer Gear Podcast. Today's episode, I have Dorge back with me, and we're talking to Tyler Terry. Tyler is from Arizona. He is an MIT grad. This dude is an absolute genius and does a really good job communicating really technical ideas to the average bow hunter like myself. I really enjoyed this podcast. We talk about a ton of things. We talk about arrow clocking. We talk about string manufacturing. We talk about arrow setups. Some of the arrow setup conversations might make some people a little bit upset. So just a fair warning, stick around. You're going to want to hear what he has to say. And we get into a little bit about my bow setup. And I'm right now ordering uh, 80% let off mods for my Matthews V3X, previously shooting 85% mods. And in this episode, you'll hear why I'm making that switch. Before we get all the way into the episode, I do have a couple quick things to note. This weekend, Mobile Hunters Expo Exodus is going to be exhibiting there. So if you want to come check out the new Exodus MMT arrows or you want to check out some cameras, get some cameras out, Winchester, Ohio Mobile Hunters Expo. It's going to be a really great event. You can catch us there. Jace, Lucas, and Jared are going to be down there talking deer hunting, talking arrows, talking cameras. So Make sure you guys swing by the booth and check us out. We also have Velvet Fest going on. It's the official start to deer season, and it's a really exciting time of year to be scouting, uh, getting your bow set up ready, getting your equipment ready, everything that has to do with getting started for deer hunting. Right now is the time to do that. It's a really exciting time for us here at Exodus. And because of that, we are offering some really great savings on the website. 20% off any multiple Exodus render order or Exodus render bundle order using the code VELVETFEST. So head to the website, exodusoutdoorgear.com, put two or more renders or render bundles in your cart, use the code VELVETFEST, and you will save 20% on that purchase. Along with that, any order this entire month through uh, the first few weeks in August, every purchase is going to come with a VELVETFEST scratch-off card, and every card is a winner. So you're going to have additional savings available to you because we're really excited about deer season right here on the horizon with all that stuff being said guys thank you for tuning in to yet another episode of the deer gear podcast episode number 41 and let's talk to tyler terry all right folks welcome back to another episode of the deer gear podcast Today, I have Dorge back with me, and we have a new guest with us. We have Mr. Tyler Terry. How you doing, man? I'm doing well, brother. How are you? I'm doing great. Excited to have you here, Dorge. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fantastic. Glad, glad to have you both. Did you have a good vacation? Yeah. I did. I caught everything. I mean, with hooking. <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether you guys know. I'm a bigger fisherman than I was a hunter. I mean, you're talking a guy who spent over a hundred something thousand dollars on rods. <laughs> I mean, it's not unusual. I dropped three grand on a fishing reel. When George does, I know you. <laughs> he does but it I have to modify. I, I modify most of it, but we don't go in that because I can easily spend twenty hours just talking about a reel. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tyler, before we get into anything today, give everyone uh, listening here a little background about yourself. So uh, I started in archery when I was real young, like six, seven years old, um, started mostly hunting. I, was, I grew up in like the only archery only county in the state of Texas for a long time. So 
if I wanted to hunt as a kiddo, it was going to be with a bow. And, and that's what kind of got me started with my family. And then, uh, you know, I started shooting competitive as I got into high school and things of that nature. And then, um, one thing led to another, you know, I uh, went to college, joined the military, and then went back to college after the military. And I, I worked on things that were going to help me with the stuff that I like to do, make those things better. So, you know, from a mechanical engineering standpoint and a physics standpoint, that's, those were the things I felt like I needed to focus on to be able to, um, you know, take my equipment to the next level, because I've always been a tinkerer, right? So I like to make stuff myself build things with my hands stuff like that so it was the the root of launching kind of my career in archery um was based on trying to modify and tinker my with my own stuff early on you know i spent some time in school you know working in a wind tunnel um and things of that nature and it i learned a lot of things that just seemed to kind of make me scratch my head like me and George have talked before i'm like why, why is it made this way when it's clearly not the best way to do it? I mean, if you really think about things, even down to, you know, how points are shaped these days on the front of arrows and things of that nature, something that is really fine pointed is really not the best case scenario for archery stuff, but all of our points are super sharp on the end. Right. So it's just funny <laughs> when you really learn, um, how to make things better it's it's amazing you can build quite a mechanical advantage into your setup if you do it smart right so but the problem is is um there's not a lot of really great information out there uh pertaining to the real scientific part of it there's a lot of just hey i've done it this way for 20 years and it works so that's what i'm going to do with it right so you know and, and this industry is very much so perception is reality. So I believe it works, so it works, right? But there's a better way to do a lot of this stuff. And um, I believe it starts with education. It starts with putting the information out there, giving people some hard results and, um, you know, helping that lead to being successful. Because you know what's going to grow our industry is helping people be more successful with it. If you're you know, doing something and it's, it's not hard to be good at it, or you see immediate success that, that makes you want to continue to do it. And it's going to make you want to, you know, bring other people into it because if it's fun for you, you want it to be fun for all the people around you. Right. So if we can do a, a better job at helping people be successful with, with good information, um, I think it's going to help everybody across the board, you know, so uh, that's kind of my mission here with some of this stuff is to take some of the knowledge that I've gained, you know, from my education and stuff like that. And just time spent tinkering and behind the bow and, um, you know, cause that's been the majority of my career is just, you know, tinkering, developing, working on things. I mean, I've got boxes and boxes of stuff here at the shop that are just, uh, you know, creations of my own that led to either it was a complete disaster and that, you know, but I was able to, to take away things from that, right, and be able to implement it into something else moving forward or, you know, from an experience I had on a project that maybe did great or failed, it helps me with people that come to the door like, okay, well, hey, this is kind of what I think is going on. I'm like, oh, I've, I've had that happen before. So then it, it's easier <laughs> for me to lead you in a good direction. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. How did you and George connect? Um, actually, I had watched some – and I – years ago at one of the tournaments i think it was he maybe come to 
the Texas ASA back when it was in Paris, Texas, um, like around one of the first ones, like 2008 or nine, maybe. And I showed up and I saw some of the stuff and I was like, man, that, that's really good. Like it's fletching jig and stuff like that. And I, I'm always, you know, I'm a, I like go fast stuff too. Right. So like race car stuff, Harleys, all that kind of stuff, you know, fast boats. I was always into that kind of stuff. And to me, he had like race looking stuff, but for archery, you know what I mean? I don't even know if that makes sense, but it was like high tech. <laughs> it was real precise. Like it was things that, that, I, that made sense to me. I was like, and uh, over the years, I'd kind of, I've got bits and pieces of it here and there. And then um, a couple of years ago, I'd reached out to him about becoming a dealer because I I was a manufacturer as far as strings go. But then I had a bunch more people coming to me actually wanting to buy product because I was building a lot of bows and doing a lot of custom work for people. And, and I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to reach out to the companies that I really trust and believe in um, and and get on board and become a partner with those people to where I can do the best work I can for, for customer base. And, um, I reached out to George then and we got to talking and, and basically would sit and nerd out for like two or three hours on, on stuff, you know, and, and it really, you know, I've learned a lot, you know, from conversation with George that kind of instilled, you know, some things that I was thinking anyways. And, and it was, he was able to explain it to me, you know, from a scientific standpoint of, and, and it made things make sense really. So we, we kind of hit it off and initially it was, a um, you know, reaching out to become a dealer to be able to sell his product and be able to use his equipment to build, you know, arrows and stuff like that for my customers. Sure. Yeah. So today uh, real quick, I want to dive into kind of an experience I had, which led you and I to talking uh, Dorge connected us. We were doing some high speed testing and we are selling arrows engineered by Firenock, the Exodus MMT arrows, and it's all Dorge's design. And the, the main thing we wanted to see was the rotations. So we had a high speed camera, we're shooting the arrow vein two. And we're like, okay, these arrows are going to rotate to the right downrange, and there's, they're going to rotate like way faster than any of the other arrows we're going to test. And when we started shooting them, we weren't seeing what we thought we would see initially. And we're like, okay, what is going on here? So we're like, well, let's clock these arrows and see what they want to do. And we clock the arrows and we, we did like 10, 12, 15 different arrows. And there was like, 10 of the 15 or 12 of the 15 wanted the clock to the left initially. And then we had three random arrows that wanted the clock to the right. And we were like, well, we need, we need this to change. And then I knew from talking to a previous string builder and talked to George about this, that there had, there was something going on with the string that makes it want to rotate a certain way. And I had zero education on this. You, you hear all the myths about like, well, if, if you're a left-handed shooter, you're, your arrow is going to rotate to the left. If you're a right-handed shooter, it's going to go to the right. And I've had like Olympic trained archers tell me this. And I'm like, wait a second. I just talked to George and George told me it's the way the center serving is. And then it's the way the string is. So he connected me with you and we kind of figured out what was going on there. So let's talk about what makes an arrow clock a certain way at the initial launch point. I want to be specific on this. We are talking an arrow that's launched between, say, 150 feet per second all the way to around 315, okay? Anything beyond that, what we talk about, is not really applicable. 
because as you see, uh, Dave Murray did a lot of high-speed tests at 380 feet per second and 425 and 450. The results are very different. So let's stick with vertical bow stuff because okay. the moment you pass 315, aerodynamic kicks in 100%, change everything. Tyler, go for it. You are the expert in this okay. arena. You are, so, the, you, are the, you are the de facto spring builder expert. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what ends up happening is, is, is even the material that we get from like BCY or, or Bloodline or whoever is um, put together in the individual strands you get off the spool or put together um, clockwise, right? So um, majority of us build a bowstring in a clockwise manner. The string is twisted clockwise, your serving goes on the same direction and all that. So, and a lot of this has to do with your center serving and the knock fit as well. So, and, and it seems the tighter your serving is, the more rotation it imparts on the bowstring as well. So what we, what you end up finding out is, is the majority of the string makers out there um, smartly build a bowstring clockwise because that's the way the material is designed to be put together um so to get the stability you need and all that stuff that's how you build it well in turn that that lets go of an arrow basically and it starts to spin it to the left so pretty much every bow you pick up off the shelf these days is going to turn an arrow to the left and the funny part is is about 90 percent of the things that are out there in archery are designed to go to the right so <laughs> It's kind of funny. There's a lot of broadheads that are designed to turn right. There's most fletches, especially if you buy like a pre-fletched arrow um, from almost anyone, they're a, a two degree offset to the right or a little bit of right helical. Um, you know, and the funny part is, is all the bows and bowstrings are turning arrows to the left. So, um, you know, it's kind of funny, but it all has to do with the serving tension and some of it, the serving diameter, how it's on there all changes the rate of rotation. Um, but it has to do with the direction that everything is put together. So it's kind of funny. You put the, the bowstring together clockwise, but it turns it the opposite direction. So, you know, if we could get string material built counterclockwise, where we could put a stable bowstring together counterclockwise, we could get a natural right rotation that would go along with most of the archery products that are available. So, you know, it's a direct correlation with the direction that things are twisted on a bowstring will change the direction that the arrow leaves the bow. So it's a long answer for something as simple. No. Yeah, that's good. Explain though, what happens if you do have the counterclockwise twist, if say you're shooting a right beveled broadhead yeah. and someone's like, I need this thing to turn to the right, no matter what, what are you going to be dealing with, with your string? So you can build one that way. And I sent you a couple that way. And I kind of pre-warned you guys like, Hey man, you're going to have some peep rotation issues and this is not going to be super stable. So what ends up happening is, is the material ends up wanting to like unravel itself. So um, even though we built it the other direction to initially try to turn the arrow um, to the right, um, the material itself is not designed to be twisted that way. So the entire time the string is working against itself and it's wanting to unravel. Um, and the, the amazing part is, is even like if you pull, you know, take it out of the package and you take the paper clip off and, and you let go of it, it'll start to unwind. Um, and you know, everything's going the direction it should be, but the problem is the material itself is made to go counter 
or uh, to go clockwise. So when you build one counterclockwise, it's working against itself the whole time. So you're going to see crazy peep rotation and some instability there um, that you wouldn't see if we were to put one together correctly. Um, so, you know, you run into some issues. So the root of the thing would be is if we could have material built and designed to go that direction, then we could build something super stable um, that's going to give you a good performing bowstring, but is also going to turn an arrow the correct way. Um, you know, like I said, we can get one to go the other direction, but you're going to run into some headaches. It creates other problems that are more uh, costly and dramatic than just having an arrow stall out of the bow before it starts its rotation. Yeah, that, that was, I'm going to lead into that too, but there was also one other thing I wanted to, to bring to the light here is when you have a, a string that is rotated counterclockwise and then the serving, if the serving doesn't marry that, you said you get some oh, yeah. type of rubber band effect. Explain you that. Get, you get some, cra okay, so if, if your string, let, let's say we put together the string clockwise, but I put the serving on counterclockwise, um, it's going to unwind itself almost immediately um, because at that point, as you're putting the serving on, especially if you put the serving on tight, it's going to unwind it as you put it on. So you're going to get a string that does some crazy stuff. Um, it just, it will not perform at all. I mean, technically it's going to hold the bow together, but that's it. I mean, that's about <laughs> out of it, right? So, I mean, unless your peeps tied in really good, it's going to fly out because the string is going to actually come apart during during the shop process and then come back together and come apart and come back together. So you're going to see some crazy stuff happen um, when you do that. And there, I mean, there's some string builders out there if they're getting started or whatever that will build a few of them that way. Normally it's on accident, right? It's not, it's not <laughs> like a purpose built thing. Um, if it is purpose built, you need to reevaluate your string building, but um, it's, you definitely run into some issues and, and generally you'll see it rotate a ton one direction and then it'll start and come back the other way maybe once or twice before you actually get it full draw so wow. initially it's gonna it's going to try to unwind itself really bad yeah it's a big problem so let's let's talk about this stalling um this is something that i've been like wrapping my i, I can't wrap my head around it and it's something I need to hear probably George explain. And then Tyler, you can explain as well. So when you have that initial clock to the left, and let's just use Aerovane 2 for uh, the purpose of this video or this podcast, the Aerovane 2 is designed with airfoil that is going to rotate the arrow to the right eventually, mm -hmm. but it's going right. to start off the bow to the left. That stalling effect that you see happen what is that doing to the efficiency of the aerial? Is is there a loss there? There has to be something. Right? Absolutely, but that you see, you need to understand that when to, right, right on the get go, we start talking about bow days from say something a hundred something feet per second all the way to about three hundred and fifteen. Okay, the reason I want to mention that because at that moment aerodynamic is not your dominant factor. As you can you can imagine, most vertical bow, you're not going to reach that three fifteen magic mark. So in other words, aerodynamic is not a really big factor, but the aero recovery is. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to throw in aero recovery because this is one of the most important thing and which is the reason with modern compound bow. And then any defined as any bow that was made up of 2014 and it's say 75 or 80% or more. The biggest issue at this moment is not actually not the inefficiency of the stalling, but 
as you can imagine, if you shoot more video on some of the bows that's heavy FOC thin diameter, that actually how the arrow shaft itself behave. In other words, the crosswind signature of the shaft is a bigger effect than stalling. Mm. Because at that moment, the initial launch of the arrow, the aerodynamic, which you call, call the drag factor, is the biggest. And in the case of Aerowing 2, you find out that because see, we haven't reached a high speed. So in other, a high speed of what an airfoil would take place. But at the same time, we're looking at, uh, there's a certain efficiency on it. You can see that difference between say the MMT arrow or the arrow concept arrow compared to a normal arrow. First of all, you see the arrow flap out like crazy, especially if you're shooting something like a, a say about 15% FOC arrow with a 166, you'll find the tail of the arrow at that moment, it's not stalling but they tell the arrow flipping close to about 11 to 12 inches in the span. But at that, that moment, what's stalling? I mean, you already got a parachute to start with. But see, at the same time, the, the reason the stalling is pretty much what happens is that when you launch it, the arrow itself, because of what the, you need to think about the serving very much like a, a, a baseball pitcher grabbing the ball and somebody just put a curveball on it. Yes, that's the reason the arrow turned left to start with. But see, as it go forward, the reason it's stalled because the air is going through the arrow vein. The airfoil is taking effect. It wanted to turn right. But just like, you know, just like if you slam the car to reverse when you're going forward, the car gonna go backwards and stall before it might go forward, stall before it go backwards. That's exactly the same effect. But the thing is that the amount of chaos, yes, the word chaos is used in the first, 15 to 18 yards if you shoot a 246, and then you go into about 20 yards if you do a 204 or 23 yards in the 166. That's where all the chaos happened. So based on, I mean, I, mean, I, I did a quite a bit of testing with uh, Tony Warden. We built 280 something arrows, and then we went through the double radar system and based on our initial test, we haven't go finish yet because we screwed up on the double radar. I just cannot believe it. <laughs> Our radar didn't work for a while, and it took me freaking a while to figure out, just for fun of it. You know what caused the double radar to fail? Mm. Our headphone. <laughs> we put on a freaking wireless headphone, and it killed the double radar. <laughs> uh. So we have to redo the test, because we just got some tests, and then we lost it. We got some tests, and we lost it. I said, what's going on? And finally, we sent the whole thing to lab radar, and then you come back to us, you say, well, there's nothing wrong with it. So the technician went with every single thing we did. It was working perfect four or five times. So we finished testing. Then we put the headphone on with the video camera and the thing stopped working. <laughs> <laughs> so what we believe that is the, the Sennheiser headphone have the same radio frequency, frequency. as what the Debra radar used. That's the reason the whole thing just go haywire. Well, anyway, what we build, what we from the initial, I haven't got absolute solid numbers, so I, I would just give you what my guesstimate is. You're looking at about two to three percent on stalling okay. at 100 yards. So yes, is that inefficiency loss? I will tell you the efficiency loss compared to efficient gain just from moving from a simple shaft to arrow concept. That alone in the first 30 yards, that's about eight to 12 percent difference. The stalling itself is about. I would say if you're pushing maybe 3% at hundred yards. So I really consider nothing. So in other words, the aero recovery is bigger than aerodynamics at under 315. 
Sure. Now, that, makes that sense. will totally change when you move yeah. on because they, you're slamming the rotation of the arrow started and then regain it. But remember, all these are happening simultaneously. Remember, there's four, four things happening. You, first of all, you got a torsion of the shaft, which most people didn't recognize. Because when you compress a normal build arrow, even like your MMT, which is based on my uh, a spot weave, it got torsion in it. The torsion can be left to right. It really doesn't matter because when you compress it, the entire arrow shaft will compress and torque. The second portion you also have to deal with the fact is that the surface is forcing the arrow. It's a mechanical device, okay? It's just like the torsion of the shaft. Then you also have to talk about the, re the, the, the front of the arrow holding its position while the tail is flapping. See how many things going on? <laughs> and finally, we'd also have to think about how the broad, the broad head of viewpoint itself impact on the shaft. So this forming factor all come together, which makes stalling a reasonably minor of this whole thing, especially when you look at one or two or maybe even pushing 3% at a hundred yards, but if you should have did a 30 yard in depth speed range, that really is not a factor. To be fair with you, your shaft recovery is the dominant factor. And that's the reason we make aero concepts so good because it's just like so many people who, who have not seen anything and, and try to I try to show them, but in some way, um, I'm not very good at doing that. <laughs> I'm, I'm theoretically, I'm good, but in order to explain, I mean, Cameron, I would give you and the, and, and the team Exodus of extreme F, um, extreme credit. You guys explain a lot of things I did so much better. I thank you for that. Well, we thank you for giving us the opportunity. Tyler, do you have anything to add to that or anything you want to talk about there? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, at the end of the day, if, you know, like George said, if you see a, a two or three percent max because of a an arrow stalling um, in efficiency loss, most of us are never going to be able to shoot that. When you you know, if you got a robot shooting this thing uh, in a completely clean environment, you know, in a wind tunnel, okay, maybe it's measurable, maybe you know, because we're we're talking about you know, it's being fired by a bow that's going to have its own inconsistency, right? So it may have a two or 3% efficiency loss per shot, shot to shot, right? So the thing is, is um, that's almost unmeasurable when you, when you add the human element, right? And, you know, something else that you can that add to even to what George was saying is, is, you know, how the arrow is being launched, what it does in the first, you know, few feet of flight uh, is important especially if you've got like a fixed blade broadhead or something like that, mm -hmm. um, the less oscillation and the less paradox you can get out of it, the better it's going to be, right? The less chance of having a planing issue, the less chance of anything like that. So, you know, another way you can combat that is, is, you know, not worrying about what direction it's turning initially so much, but maybe even think about, you know, the let off on your bow, right? So a lot of things that people, you know, a factor that people don't, plug into when they're figuring arrow performance all the time is is how the energy is being put into the arrow right so you know nowadays like he was saying you know a lot of the newer stuff almost all of it with the exception of a couple companies still make an option where you can be you know 60 to 70 percent let off um which believe even though it's maybe less comfortable for us to shoot it initially it's way better for your tuning your bow your arrow everything um, 
So if you can manage that, I would say 100%. Shoot the lowest let off bow you can manage, okay? Um, you're just gonna have less headaches, period. And you're gonna see an efficiency change and you're gonna see uh, trajectory change just from that alone. If you had two bows that were identical, same poundage, same everything, one of them was 90% let off and one of them was 65, at 100 yards, the 65% let off bow will shoot a foot higher than the one that's 90% let off. And that's because of how it puts the energy in the arrow. The arrow is gonna have less uh, oscillation through flight. So there's gonna be less time of elliptical axis of rotation, right? So every time that arrow but bends, we've got an energy loss, right? So the smoother transition we can put energy into the arrow, the less initial paradox we're gonna have off the bow. So, you know, because when you have a bow that has like 90% let off, say 70 pounds, 90% let off, how, you know, and this is gonna be, I'll try to make this, but you know, initially it comes out of the dwell zone and then it has an almost vertical climb into the power stroke, right? Where if you have one, you know, let's say a 60 or 65% let off, it's a lot smoother transition into the power stroke. So how it delivers the energy to the arrow is a huge factor in figuring performance, you know, because there's so many people out there nowadays that try to figure arrow ballistics like they would a bullet. They're, they're not comparable. <laughs> you can't just, you know, all the guys on the internet, you look at them, they're like, oh, well, my, it's, it weighs this much, it's going this fast, that means it equals it has this much energy. That's 100% false. Because there's mm -hmm. a lot of factors that you're leaving out. Okay, bullets don't flex in the air like an arrow does. Bullets don't have a um, aspect ratio of wall thickness to diameter. All those things go into what is going to make the arrow perform well or not. So, you know, it's being able to, but it's hard to get people to understand that little bit, right? Um, and it's because there's, you know, it's not just a speed versus weight gives me X, right? There's, there's a whole lot of other factors that go into what creates uh, or, or energy loss or gain in aeroflight. I mean, it's not going to gain anything, but you get what I'm saying. There's, there's, you know, in efficiency percentage. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, there's, there's a lot more that goes into it. I mean, really, you know, I've got guys, you know, the big thing now is, is micro diameter arrows and guys shooting <laughs> 80 pounds um, and, and all this stuff. And it's just, that's out of a 90% let off bow. That's just a recipe for disaster. You know, people have tons of tuning issues with them and all this stuff. And then they're wanting to run 200 grain broadheads on a 166 <laughs> arrow, at 75 pounds with 85% let off. Good luck. That's Chad. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, if you want to shoot 80 pounds and a 200 grain broadhead, then you need to shoot like a like a uh, X cutter or something, like a 25, exactly. like a like a big ass carbon arrow, right? Something with a thin wall that's going to react really fast and going to maintain its shape and start spinning on a single axis really quickly. That's what you're going to have to have to make that thing really dial in and shoot well. You're not going to do it with a micro diameter arrow. It's not going to happen. Could you make it shoot okay at 20 yards? Sure. At 60 yards? No. You're going to have problems. I'm, that You explained that really, really well. So thank you for that. The the let off thing there is like, that's got to be one of those things that you look at and be like, why do people, why are, why are bow manufacturers doing this? Why are they Because everybody loves it because, because it makes you easy. feel better. It's an easy mm -hmm. button. It's, it's the way to not have to work at shooting your bow 
because mm-hmm. you can draw it back the four times you're going to do it when you get it out of the case before deer season and hope that everything's good and it's not hard for you to keep it full draw. Sure. So it's taking the work out of archery, but the problem is, is it, it creates a whole nother set of issues. Sure, you can hold it at full draw for five minutes. It'll, it'll damn near hold itself at full draw, but it creates so many other problems um, with accuracy and tuning and things of that nature. It's um, hopefully, and I think we're starting to see a little bit of a trend. People are coming back to a little longer, more stable bows and even kind of giving us the option to go back to more holding weight, even in a hunting bow. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to this day, I still, you know, my hunting bow's got like 22 pounds of holding weight. People are like, that's crazy. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't I? It works. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the stability, the consistency, the yeah, efficiency, I mean, the long range. I don't, I don't have to be so on point, right? So here's something to think about. If I've got a bow that has seven pounds of holding weight at full draw, any that that means that I can literally take the string apart, put my finger in it while the bow's at full draw. There's no tension on the string almost. So anything I do in hand position, facial pressure, if I shaved off my mustache and then my lip was touching the bowstring versus just a few hairs, like that sounds stupid, but it's that minor, right? Um, it's going to affect arrow flight. Where if I have a bow that's got 20 pounds of holding weight, there's a dramatic more amount of more tension on the bowstring. So anything that I do that is not perfect is less affected. It affects the arrow way less. So I don't have to be a machine to shoot that thing well, where if you've got a 90% let off bow, you do. I mean, and, and the thing is, is and people are like, well, I don't know, you know, I, I had a bow 15 years ago and I just shot it great. I'm like, you're right. Probably did. probably had 60% let off and, you know, mm-hmm. you're shooting a larger diameter arrow. And I mean, it turns out people weren't so stupid back then. We actually made really good stuff, right? Especially for what right. we did. And we've kind of gone I mean, the opposite direction. So actually, it's at that time, you know, we got ACCs, we got aluminum arrows. People don't understand the actuality besides the durability of aluminum arrows. Aluminum arrow is one of the easiest freaking tune arrow you can possibly get because you got a freaking linear spine. The only thing about it is that you got memory issue. I mean, just like what I say, 75 shots. If you're using the spine correctly, the arrow is done for. Yeah, aluminum arrows are hard to beat, man, especially when it just comes to consistency and accuracy. They're they're really as good as it gets. I mean, they especially those ACCs. I mean, that's the reason I say if you've got one of those like Eastern AC Super Slim, they only make one year. I mean, those are the freaking best arrow I have ever seen. I mean, I tested everything. I mean, to the point that I would say the AC Super Slim compared to my Arrow Weave 204 light, they are pretty much on par. Mm. No, and I, I, that's a lot of credit for me to give an error that I didn't make. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, the the guy that won't make anything unless it's fifty percent better. Yeah, this person, but Eastern no longer make that. That's the reason I don't have to live on that because see, my current arrow weave two hundred four light compared to super slim, if it exists, I would not be able to say my error is fifty percent better than anything out there. Right. I'll say I would say I would pretty much on par with it, which is uh, I'm not happy about that. <laughs> sure, man. Every time I have one of these conversations with someone that is an expert in this, I always 
I'm not, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight because my setup is so wrong. Every time I'm like, Oh my God, what you're an idiot. So I'm shooting a Matthews V three X now, uh, mm-hmm. 70 pounds. And I'm like, Oh man, I got an option for 80% lot off 85% lot off. Let's go with the high let off, man. Let's go with the 85. So I bought the 85% let off cams. How big of a difference? So if I go, if I call my bow shop today, I'm like, Hey man, I need 80% let off compared to 85%. Like, am I, am I, should I be losing sleep over this or no? Well, I'll tell you this, just from a shooting standpoint, I mean, let alone what it'll do to benefit your arrow. um, You're going to aim the bow way better probably. I mean, just because you got to think that's not a light bow, right? Like we don't make a lot of light bows these days. Um, So the less, you know, when you have less weight in your release hand, then that forces you to have to hold the bow in the air, right? Sure. There's not enough tension to actually have the bow support mm-hmm. itself at full sure. draw. So you're working actually harder holding the bow in the air than what you would be just holding the bow at full draw if you had lower let off, right? So um, you're not able to put, you know, stabilizer weight on it the way you need to or accessories on it the way that you need to um, to begin with, you know, yes, you're going to be able to hold it full draw easier, but that brings on other problems. So not just the tuning, but even to a shootability standpoint, I think you will see um, the bow will naturally point better with the more mm-hmm. holding weight. Um, so I think it's a win all the way around. Okay. Even though it, it seems minor, the Matthews stuff tends to um, add weight a little better than some out there. So when you go from the 85 to the 80, you'll feel a few pounds difference, right? So say you're going to go from nine pounds to 13 pounds. And that sounds like not a lot, right? Um, no, percentage-wise, it's huge. If you yeah. look at it, you're yeah, talking so. a 33% increase in holding, mm-hmm. which, of course, stabilizes your entire hole. Remember you told me when you go to the new V3X, your shooting doesn't feel as good. Yeah, I can't shoot it and, as good as my triads. I can't. The triads is an 80% I love, isn't it? Yeah. Because you have a 30, I mean, you need to look at this scientifically, mathematically. You're looking at a 33% holding more. Just on a pure mechanical advantage, mechanical stabilization. Mm. That's a big number. We're not talking 25, it's 33. (laughs) Man. All right. Well, I guess I got to call my bow shop. (laughs) This is the last time this year. (laughs) He's like, I really need to get this set up. But think about, I mean, I mean, Cameron, I mean, I will give you credit. You said you are the guy who would admit what it is and you actually shoot enough to recognize this difference. You know how many people will face problems like that and just think, oh, it's not as good a boat. Oh, yeah, I, I figured it's not that. I figured it's got to be something. No, 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 you figure, but how many people say, oh, no, no, I knew you should have seen the shot. I should have heavier weight. Yeah. That's, that's what a lot of people did. Sure. They figured that, oh, my, with my 90% off, the boat is not shooting right. Let me go go and add 150 ring in the front and oh see the arrow is pointing right at 30 yards. Yeah. No. Let me ask you. I mean, Tyler, you own a shop. I mean, how many people go that direction for the last three years? Uh, man, a lot of the folks, <laughs> a lot of the folks that come in, um, I actually had a guy in a similar situation the other day shooting uh, a, a verdict of all things, since we're on that. He um had been shooting like gold tip XT hunters um, with a hundred grain brass insert, 125 grain broadhead, and it was a 300 spine. 
Um, and he was, and it was like a 28 inch arrow. So he was already under spine for the thing to begin with. And it was 85% let off and 75 pounds. So it was like compounding issues. And he was like, well, I just thought that, you know, this is what everybody's doing. And I was like, so I got him a, a standard 246 arrow. We put a 13 grain aluminum insert in it and a hundred <laughs> grain point with the same 300 spine arrow. And immediately it just wadded everything up. Um, and a lot of that came from, you know, a high let off, high efficiency bow does not equal let's shoot high SFOC. So, you know, the, the direction, and, it, and here's why people like, like the ranch ferry think they're successful with their aero build is because it's going so slow that it really doesn't matter what you do to it. When you take a bow that's designed to shoot wide open at 300 and say 40 feet a second, and you build an arrow that turns it into such a turd that it's going 230 feet a second, it really doesn't matter what you do to it. It's going to fly okay because it's going so slow. So the thing is, is, you know, it's, and people are like, well, when you do that, you make the bow more efficient. Well, there's nothing efficient about a 220 foot a second arrow okay now i would rather take an arrow half the weight almost at 300 feet a second that is very accurate right i'll kill everything i shoot at with that arrow so you know the thing is 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 it's trying to and I got guys that come in all the time especially i'm out west so i'm out here in arizona so you know everybody hunts you know, a lot of the shots here, I mean, a hell of average shot is probably 50 yards, yeah. maybe, maybe further than that. Cause people are hunting coos deer and mule deer out in the desert, you know, elk up in the mountains. So, you know, there's a, it's a lot of long range stuff with a bow here. Right. So essentially you would think the idea would be, I'm going to build the most accurate setup I can, I can build. Right. But because of poor information, people are still trying to build these like super heavy, super high FOC arrows because they think that's, what's going to kill an elk out here. Yeah. My wife in 2015 shot a monster bull with a 364 grain, 500 spine axis arrow and a schwacker and shot through it with 54 pounds, a 54 pound bow. And it was a 41 yard shot. So tell me, again why i need a 600 grain arrow and 80 pounds yeah this is so i have a few things to to mention here this is something that we've been talking about a lot like as you dive into this and you kind of realize what's going on and you have all these people talking about slug feet per second and uh, how much kinetic energy you have well you only need so much let's let's i'm gonna purely talk whitetail hunting here because uh the majority of people that listen to this are whitetail hunters mm -hmm you need an X amount of slug feet per second to pass through a whitetail. After that, everything else, what's that do for you? Nothing, right? But right. You, lo you lost a whole bunch because you have all that excess. You lost a bunch of speed. Mm -hmm. So you got there much slower. So my goal with my arrow setup would be to reach X number of slug feet per second to pass through the whitetail and then get there as fast as possible. As fast as possible. 
And I want to, I want to talk, I want to ask you guys your opinion on the efficiency mark where you talk about, well, a heavier arrow is going to be more efficient. It's going to have less um, velocity deprivation. I had Mark Hayes, the engineer of the Matthews and at Matthews that worked on the V3X. And I asked him about um, some of that. And I asked him what his arrow was, and he shoots a 370 grain arrow. And he likes that five pounds per pound of draw weight. So, or five grains per pound of draw weight. And he's like 370 feet or 370 grains. And I asked him about like, okay, say you go on the high end of that, what happens? And like, what if you took the middle of the road and you're like, okay, I don't want to be super light and I don't want to be super heavy. What if you just went right somewhere in the middle? Like they call that the happy medium. He was telling me that's the worst possible thing you can do because you don't have the best of either worlds. You have (laughs) the worst of both worlds. And he said that Matthews builds their bows to be the most efficient at IBO ratings. As they added weight to the arrow, the bow became less efficient. Mm-hmm. Have you guys seen that? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Because yep. it's just to reach the draw cycle too. And not to mention, you need to understand the Matthew bow is just like every single bow. They were designed based on 70 pound, 30 inch draw. And just remember your draw weight. The moment you go beyond that, you lose a lot of efficiency of the, of the mechanical property of the bow. At the same time, you also lose mechanical property from the from the arrow point of view. Now, that said, that's another thing. You say the heavier arrow is not 100% wrong for people who say, who do a lot of pick hunting. Sure. Especially pick hunters. That's the reason, you know, we, we uh, I, for them, just like Rick McKinney out of Calvin Tech, he would tell you, if you want to do a lot of pick hunting, the best arrow they have is the Lynx, uh, the Rhino. And of course, on that too, I added a third one because he, I understand that what they really want to do. I added the, the 204 arrow weave. That's at 14.5 grain per inch. Now you can effectively feel a very, very heavy arrow without heavy FOC. That is an efficiency, efficient, high efficient, high velocity, right, low velocity, high impact arrow. Remember, heavy arrow weight do not equal to heavy FOC if you are building the arrow with a heavier shaft weight. Sure. Which also come into play. I know some of my dealers, like like Tyler, is exploring. I mean, like Jerry Martin, our X-Wing Custom, he is expert in building super low heavyweight FOC, uh, heavyweight arrow. That's not FOC because he's building Arrow Concept 2.0, which means that they're adding an entire six-inch tube on the back of the shaft. Right. I mean, I will, will leave that for another discussion because now I would dive into a, something too serious. <laughs> so the crazy thing is, so here's the thing. So like the, the info, where the info that like what the Ranch Ferry puts out is beneficial is in longbow and recurve archers. Mm-hmm. If you shoot a longbow or a recurve, what he's doing works awesome. It does. Works awesome. And, you know, and I can't say that I've never shot high FOC arrows. I have. I've shot like 19% FOC arrows, but they were super stiff and they were very light. Even with, so 180 grain head and a 22 grain outsert, um, the entire arrow weighed 427 grains. Yeah, that's light. So it's not heavy, right? So I have a very light shaft, so I still have a lot of velocity. And the shaft recovered well. It's a 
ultra high modulus carbon shaft, so no issues. Um, and I shot it well. I mean, even out to like 130 or 40 yards, it shoots really well because it's it's still fast and it's still recovered really good, right? So, you know, I've I've played with it, but where I see, you know, the best trajectory, the fastest sight tape, places I can get the the most bang for my buck, especially nowadays when my only option is to have a bow, you know, that my best case scenario, I'm 75 or 80% let off on in most cases, um, is like under 12%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I got guys that, and especially the 31 inch draw length, 80 pound guys, yeah. maybe under 10, under 10% for them. Right. Sure. Because they, that system breaks an arrow down so hard that really mm-hmm. you need it to be able to recover as rapidly as possible. So mm-hmm. I mean, ideally he needs to shoot like a 300 diameter arrow with a light point and light insert Yep. or be able to run the arrow concept system in it and still run a light point and light right. insert. Yep. Yeah. That's what he ended up changing. I remember I'll never forget the conversation George calls Jake and I'm in the, I'm in the car and he's like, your friend, Chad, he know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> he's talking about because Ch- chad was shooting an 80 pound bow at 30 and a half inches mm-hmm. and he was shooting a, a 166 shaft with a hundred hundred 125 grain head or something and he was having a nightmare of a time and that's exactly why we have the platform that we have now with the arrows and chad's personal experiences with the bad stuff has led us to this and he switched his limbs to 70 pounds the, the first arrows that Dorge built him were a 300 arrow with um, arrow concept or arrow concept 1.0 arrow vein three. And he shot those with a 75 grain head. And they were like, absolutely <laughs> money. Like, yeah, like lasers, man. <clears throat> and the thing is, this guy's got to understand like that guy that's shooting 80 pounds and a 31 inch draw length penetration is not your issue. Mm-hmm. Right. You could shoot an animal with a blunt and you're probably going to get a pass through. Like right. it, it's, it's stupid. So worrying about shaft diameter is, is like, the problem is, is there's so much advertisement out there and there's so much information out there by a lot of the manufacturers. Really that's where it starts. The education needs to start with the manufacturers and they need to put good stuff out there. Quit trying to sell people a gimmick and start trying to sell people stuff that's going to help them be successful. Right. Okay. So you know, because here's the deal. If, if the industry wants to grow and, and do really well, let's help the people that want to be a part of it be successful, right? Mm-hmm. So let's give them some information and let's give them some training and some things that are going to be able to put it together. And I'm not saying you can't take some of these bows and make it work, right? Because there's going to be somebody out there that's like, well, I got 80 pounds and I shoot a 1660 and I make it work. You can make it work to a point. Is it ideal? No, 100% not. So, um, you know, your there's, pride. A, there's a lot of people out there making stuff work or they just don't know what they don't know and they don't realize it's wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe to them, it's working great. But in all reality, it's junk. Yeah, that was me. So, you know, so the thing is, is it's not, you know, that may be me sounding kind of rude saying that, but it's, it's, there's a lot of people that are victim of circumstance, right? They just don't know what they don't know. So exactly. that's, the whole, 
the whole perception is reality. Well, it's working for me. Well, you know, what are you doing with it? Are you shooting mm-hmm. deer over a feeder at 20 yards? Hell, you make anything work, right? right? <laughs> but are, 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 I mean, are you trying to shoot a, a coos deer at 80 yards with a bow? Okay. Now, unless your stuff's pretty dialed, that's like a three out of 10 shot, right? Oh, yeah. So, but if you've got a bow that's really dialed and it's very efficient and you don't have issues with wind and things of that nature because you're shooting a gigantic vein or something on it, now your fish, now your probability goes up because you can build mechanical advantage into your bow that is so forgiving that say, you know, say your efficiency now where you're really good is 40 yards. I'm really, I'm super comfortable shooting 40 yards, right? With proper setup, you can stretch that to 60 or 80 yards based on your setup alone. Not that you're aiming the bow any different, literally just in the, in how forgiving you can build your setup. You can take that effective range and add a third or even 50% to it or more based on just the bow setup. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and a lot of people are, are missing that part, right? They're doing the me too stuff. Like, well, what do you shoot? Oh, I, you know, I shoot a, uh, X whatever bow and I'm shooting micro diameter arrows with the hundred grain, you know, outsert and a 150 grain point. Oh, me too. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's the me too movement, man. So, um, you know, people are afraid to be different, but I like being successful. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very, I'm very results driven. I really mm-hmm. don't care much about anything other than being successful. So you know, if that means I shoot a 75 grain head and a 13 grain insert, then that's what I'm going to roll with. Um, I'm not worried about if the arrow blows up when it hits a rock on the other side after a pass through. Like that doesn't even register in my thought process. Right. Because as far as I'm concerned, that arrow did everything I needed it to do. So if I got to eat that 20 bucks, big deal. Yep. I'll go buy another one that does the same yeah, exact thing. Big deal. I'll blow every one of them up that I shoot at if that's the case. Right. Um, you know, especially if it leads to the result that I want. Right. hundred percent. So well said the people, you know, the same guy that's complaining about, you know, having to buy arrows after he shoots something with it. That same dude's also got a $6,000 long range rifle and he has $10 of these hand loads that you never get back. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm like, where's your thought process here? Right. Right. You spend all this time working on something like that and very little time with your bow. I mean, there's a lot of good hunters out there, but have a poor idea of what success looks like because they're the, oh, it's a bow. The pie plate at 20 yards is good enough. I mean, I come closer to thinking that about my target bow than I do my hunting bow. I spend way more time on my hunting bow making sure that's right than I will my because I can get away with way more on a target setup than I I mean your arrows can fly out of your bow sideways on a target bow, you know, and you can still hit what you're shooting at most of the time, right? You cannot do that with a hunting bow. Right. Mm-mm. You're trying to fly. Well, you've got a broadhead. You just can't do it. You sure. know, that that broadhead on the end of it, and it doesn't matter even if it's mechanical, it is not the same shape or length as a normal field point. The further away that thing gets from the end of your arrow shaft, the worse things become, even if it's mechanical. Yeah. Right. So 
you know, it's hard to replicate that. So like a lot of times when I have people, when they talk to me about setting up their hunting bow or broadhead tuning and all that stuff, um, I'll tune their bow with them with their broadheads on it. You know, because you might get one shoots a perfect bullet hole through paper or something with a field point. You screw a broadhead on the end of it, even though it's the same weight and say it's a mechanical, doesn't matter. It will not shoot the same hole a lot of times. So, um, you know, success starts from initial setup, right? So, you, you know, think of it this way. You know, let, let's say baseball players. You know what the difference between a good baseball player and a professional baseball player the professional baseball player has mastered fundamentals. The fundamental things that you have to do, they mastered those things. They didn't take some special pill. They don't know some super secret that makes them a pro. They mastered the fundamental stuff, the bare root basics. So to help someone really be successful from a hunting aspect with today's equipment, you've got to start initially from the, the ground up and it has to do with setup, right? Let's get the setup right and let's make sure the things that you're doing at that point are correct. You know, so if you if you get your bow initially put together right, you got somebody that's competent, helps you tune all that stuff and get it dialed in, then you're not spending all your time working on your bow, you're spending your time shooting your bow. Sure. And that's the best time spent for an archer. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's frustrating sometimes because because people come in with all this information because the internet is an amazing thing and it's crap all at the same time, right? Because anybody yep. can just put anything anywhere. Yep. Um and there's a lot of folks that are like, well, I've seen it on the internet. It's got to be the truth, right? <laughs> so, you know, and, and then, it, then, it, then it comes down to the, well, you know, I, I don't even want to call it like any celebrity hunter out, but, you know, so-and-so said this is how it works and that's got to be the truth if they use it. I'm like, bro, they got a paycheck that told them to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's a business for a lot of people, right? Where a lot of this information is coming from, it's a it's a business for them. They are paid to sell product. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you know, at the end of the day, that doesn't mean they're not paid to give you great information. They're paid to move product. Yeah. Um, so they're given whatever marketing uh, information they need to be able to get whoever fanboy to buy that stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, I hate to be like that, but it's the truth. I mean, one thing is there needs to be some more truth in the industry. It's going to benefit us. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. need to be truth everywhere. Yeah. Well, let me just, uh, with this point, I want to point out another thing that a lot of people miss, which I think Tyler will agree with me. When you start shooting a 90, 95, or you, I mean, 85% of ball, do you know how much more that demand on the shooter if you want to shoot long range? Tyler just saw hitting the nail a few minutes ago and a lot of people they all suddenly be shooting badly because they don't start with a good form to start with I mean if you're only shooting 20-30 yard pipe plate but let me sort of tell you a funny story you know I hunt in JTA Joliet training area every year in July you know, go there to do a yearly training a really qualification do you know how many people average go there with a brand new bow they put a broadhead on 20 yard put two arrow out of three on a pie plate then you qualify that's incredible over 50 percent failed that's um what did that tell you <laughs> i mean you could almost do that with a slingshot honestly i know 
but when you go to JDA and look at a guy, I mean, I remember this vividly. When I first had the JDA, the guy with a brand, a back time, a brand new Revue 318i, come out with his brand new bow case, pull out a brand new bow, and then he started shooting, and the guy stopped him and said, no, we only shoot a few head here. He shot three arrows, not one make the pie plate, one you don't even make the freaking three by three pay bear. That's... That was the M. What those are the MQ thirty two days. So we're talking a little bit back there. Oh yeah, <laughs> those, those oh. poor deer. Yeah, I mean, those, that, that was like like, uh, like two thousand or something, right? No, actually, there's a nine. Uh, that will be nineteen ninety seven. Oh okay, yeah. I was five years yeah, old. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I can just tell you, I'm a very old guy. I've <laughs> been hunting for a long time. <laughs> I, I'm one of I the guys who everything is. <laughs> yeah. I, I might have made it to high school by then. I have one, uh, one. I want to. I need to circle like way, way back here. So mm-hmm. I'm going back to arrow clocking and the result of. So we always talk about like, okay, well, if everyone does it this way, why is it built another way? And so my question to Dorge when we were doing all this was, Dorge if 90% of arrows come off the bow clocking to the left, why does arrow vein make your arrow go to the right? George, why don't you answer that for me? Very easy. You hang with a broadhead. The broadhead got a right-hand screw. If you want, you cock everything to the left, can you imagine you hit the arrow, the freaking broadhead unscrew from your arrow or your field point on every single shot? I mean, that's, I mean, unless the whole industry from upside down, stuff from field point thread all the way onwards, it's pointless. I mean, if you do not shoot a broadhead that is not, that is just glue on, yes. But how many broadhead you can buy that is not a screw on? Not many. Yeah. I, I, can't, I, I mean, the only one I can remember are the musty glue on. Uh, Thorn that's makes like the one only now. One. Right. Yeah, but, yeah. but that's it. I mean, yeah. that means every single arrow, because remember, the stalling and everything only happened about three to five feet. You don't shoot at anywhere three to five feet. You will still go back to the right eventually because every single vein is made that way because all the rest come in. Sure. But that that changes. I mean, I also get back into a lot of aerodynamics. The moment you're heating to say the 315 and about like the 380, 420, you can see from a Dave Murray's video, high-speed video, the arrow being two and arrow being three would turn within two inch in front of the crossbow. Because at that moment, aerodynamics is that big a factor. Remember, you got speed. Yep. The airfoil will go over speed, everything happened. I know most of the vertical guys don't really understand this, but imagine this. Ten, no, no, don't have to imagine that as a matter of fact, 10 point at a 505 to 150 feet was a crossbow. And you should see the effect of those. I mean, it gives you a whole different meaning of first on the big band, ballistic coefficient, the, the aerodynamic trajectory coefficient. It gives you the how the aerodynamics works and how many disasters broadhead you got. Sure. The broadhead is slightly not perfect and true. You're looking at six inch at 40 yards. Mm-hmm. Because you're dealing with 515 to 525 feet per second. Yeah. At that moment. I mean, I, I think just like my conversation professor said, like you imagine the reason the Chinese new plane got us two side wing in the front, because it's so much more forgiving compared to our 
uh, our F-16, the uh, F-15 in the front on the two side edge. Because they make the side edge is to give it stability, but they give you also maneuverability. See, this is what you mean maneuverability is not something you want in aero. You want it to go perfectly straight. But remember, the moment you, you change the, the aerodynamic and the broader and how you catch air, boy, how break loose. Sure. I mean, it's now something. you understand why I went through that extreme to build my broadhead identical in length, in height, to a fuel point. Yeah, right. Because see, when somebody tells you you fly like a fuel point, that's nothing called fly like a fuel point. It has to be like a fuel point. That's yeah. nothing called like. Right. Yeah. You got to, you know, something to think about from like an aerodynamic perspective too. You know, even these days even down to like target archery right there's a lot of target points out there that are very long and very pointed okay so people immediately think because it looks sharp that it's going to go through the air better but mm -hmm. here's something that i want to put out there so i don't know if you're familiar with like the land speed record people that go to like the bonneville salt flats and they got those um like arrow liner real long skinny like jet propelled vehicles that run like that break the sound barrier basically um and if you look at any of those vehicles none of them have a pointed nose mm -hmm. they're round they have a round nose they're almost built mm -hmm. like, a like a torpedo basically right it's not sure. very mm -hmm. sharp it's round so like if we were you know to make an accurate efficient target point it really needs to be rounded on the nose not very pointed on the nose because mm -hmm. when it's super pointed it actually causes the air to bend almost 90 degrees off of it mm -hmm. right exactly instead of slipping through the air it breaks the air and causes the air to actually come off of it this way um and it creates more more issues because if you ever seen a picture of a like a jet as it's breaking the sound barrier you see all of the air and everything dispersing away from it, right? And that has to do with how it's going through the air. Um, one that is rounded, let's say like a jumbo jet on the front, that's built for efficiency. Mm -hmm. um, even down to air miles per gallon of fuel, all those things go, that go into that, that's an efficient design. Um, you know, so really the older short, rounded field points are better yes absolutely but that bring it back because see a lot of people ask me that exact same question because see i also race but at the same time we need to deal with the fact is that if you should asa ibo mm -hmm. the rounded point doesn't work you do no, know why you get kicked out Harris. <laughs> so, yeah. you know i've got, I've got something to show you and i was kind of i was leading up to this let me grab something real quick. i'm going to show you something. <laughs> You see, that was where the problem is. Because see, when we start shooting those tournaments, the most important is shoulder yourself into the target. All right, yeah. go ahead. So, so here's the thing. So I've got some arrows built with the, the destroyer um, points from Fire Knock, mm -hmm. and I've got these also. And literally, the only reason I shoot this, mm -hmm. I don't know if you can see that very well, Yep. It's very long, very pointed, very hard. Mm -hmm. It's literally for glance out issues. Because if yep. you're, you know, a lot of these classes, you've got a lot of archers that are really good. They're all shooting mm. in a spot this big. And 
you know, it'll get crowded really fast. You put a bunch of large diameter arrows in there and then it eats up room really quick. So, you know, unless you have something like this, you shoot one of those rounded, more blunt field points in there and it could deflect your arrow off the target. Like not, mm -hmm. not just out of the scoring ring that you want, but like to a zero. So mm -hmm. that's where this works really well. And the fact that you're only shooting out to 50 yards, mm -hmm. you're not going to see the difference in this being blunt versus being pointed. So that means if you're shooting on your own in the, in the backyard and you want to save your target with the most efficient pull and so on, yep. the freaking blunt point is the best. Mm -hmm. Yes. Why do I make a pointed point? Because can you imagine every single person that call me and say, Dodge, your point is not pointed. Is it really good? <laughs> it happened on the very first time. Yeah. Just avoid that altogether. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So at the end of the day, after all I said, I'm still going to shoot something like this at, at ASA targets and stuff because it's going to get me the result that I need if I run into someone else's arrow. And in the uh, Dorge's points, I just, Anytime you've got one that's long and the taper is gradual, it's going to have less of a kickout issue. Um, mm -hmm. But when it comes to pure efficiency and aerodynamics, it's not the best design. That makes nope. a lot of sense. I, I'm shooting a, a broadhead that doesn't have a super pointed tip. And it's funny, the, the, they did a lot of testing and they were trying to determine how sharp the, t the actual tip of the head should be. And as they sharpened that edge and made the angle a lot sharper, their penetration became less and less and less. And mm -hmm. they'll, ha they'll have people do that. They'll call them, okay, your broadheads aren't very sharp out of the pack. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like the blades are sharp. And we're like, yeah, but the tip, the tip's not real sharp. And then those people would sharpen the tip of it and they, they wouldn't penetrate as well. So it was like they found a, I don't, I don't know if they did it on purpose or what, but the tip of the head is not at a very sharp angle and the tip itself is not sharp. And everyone, they do the same thing. They get all these calls like, hey, these aren't sharp. And they're like, please yep. do not sharpen them because you will have a worse result. Well, just like, you know, uh, uh, Peterson Blending did a review on my, on my the dagger and it was not very good because he's shooting through hot stuff. We're talking wood, plastic, steel, you name it. But we don't hunt those. Don't, we don't have steel plate season or, 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 or plywood season. I yeah. designed mine to kill and also reuse. Because the, I, you know how long it takes me to come up with a concept? You said if I build you a really, really good two blade, you know what the problem with the two blade is? You must be able to sharpen it or else it's a one-shot deal. Have you ever tried to sharpen, say, an iron wheel? <laughs> <laughs> it won't happen it is what it is when you finish with it unless you send a factory you're not going to get that arc but you can close your eyes with the say uh, Arkansas stone you were able to sharpen a fine enough uh, dagger with your eyes closed that's how <laughs> I design it because a lot of people don't understand when you want to design something to be usable you need to explain the usable section which is also why I insist on certifying trained dealer because at least there is some guys out there know that I'm not pushing them. I'm going to listen and then convey the message to the customer. Right. That's a Which big challenge rough, to overcome. Yeah, that's a big, that's a big <laughs> challenge. I mean, if, if you want to think, let's look back to like one of the most successful like 
broadhead point designs over the years. And this even goes into like bow fishing, shooting like gator guard that are hard, super hard, right? And like the original like muzzy trocar tip, that mm-hmm. little chisel point tip, um, it's not super sharp. It's it's fat. It's uh, you know, but it will penetrate as good as anything there is. It'll go through mm-hmm. bone as good as anything there is. That's why there's still a lot of broadheads these days that emulate that point design um, because it works. Yep. Like that little mm-hmm. triangle chisel point works really well. And it's not real pointed. It's not a steep uh, or a very shallow blade angle. It's it's pretty steep, you know what I mean? So, in, you know, and you wouldn't think it would work well, but I remember as a kid when I first started bow hunting, I shot through everything with an old 90 grain four blade muzzy. I mean, shot through everything. Yep. Eggs, all kinds of crap. You know what I mean? I grew up in Texas shooting. We shot hundreds of them. Yep. And it's like, just never had an issue not with fast bows or nothing. I mean, hell, I think the first handful of deer I ever shot was with a 250 or 60 foot a second arrow. Oh yeah. You know, so um, that design works good. That little yeah. short mm-hmm. blunt design works really good. You know? Yep. Yeah. We've been, uh, we've been going here for a little over an hour here, but man, this is one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done. So thank you for, for joining me. Is there anything here that you want to leave off? You've had, you've I had some how. things that you're like, man, I need to get this out there. Is there anything else that you're like dying, dying to get out there? Oh hey, man. Terry mentioned about your shop. Your shop is new. I mean, nobody knows it. And you oh, yeah. so, to Arizona. Man, so, yeah, so, <laughs> so we moved. So originally I was just a manufacturer and I did a, a technical school with Fulcrum Archery. We do like uh, technical seminars, teach people how to work on their own their own bows and we certify Bowtex for shops and all kinds of stuff. Well, I recently moved all that to Safford, Arizona. So we're in Eastern Arizona now. Um, and uh, we decided to open a full pro shop and everything. So I'm not just doing custom builds anymore. We're, we're a full blown pro shop nowadays. So um, I'm still, I'm currently waiting on product. We're stocking a bunch of stuff now. We're planning on having our grand opening here when I get back from Coleman around the 5th or 6th of August. So, um, but it's, it ought to be good. There's tons. It, it amazed me. There is gobs of bow hunters out here and very few shops. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to help all the folks around here, uh, be a little more convenient because they were driving two or three hours to bow shops and stuff. So, um, you know, we're looking to, to educate as best we can. If, if people want it, if they don't, we're just going to set up their stuff the best we can. But if, if they want to learn, and, and want to go a little deeper into their stuff, we're absolutely going to help them with it, if we can. Like I say, it's not everybody wants to hear it. So those that don't, we're just going to get you what you need. But those that do want to know, we'll help you. That's really cool. Well, guys, make sure to go check that out. Dorge, thanks for, thanks for doing this again. Thanks for setting us up. And until next time, we'll talk to you. See yep. you guys. Have a good one.